Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, a short form, generally, conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business and career. I know you're all busy, so I thought, well, why not put together a best of episode? With that in mind, I thought I'd start with something very practical, like the top three Tactical Tuesday episodes of 2020. Since it's been a year and many of you new listeners may not have even gotten back this far in the catalog yet, I've gone back and handpicked the three episodes that, by my very biased opinion and your download numbers, suggests that these are the three you should listen to. And I think it's relevant for the following reasons. First, the episode that you'll hear out of the gate is a twofer because it gives you a glimpse into the past and into the future because of the place that it was recorded. More to that in a minute. While it also disseminates some of the most practical advice I think has ever been given on Suncast. Josh Beck joined me for his first time on the show back at the Podcast Lounge at 2019's North America Smart Energy Week to share his fundraising checklist for solar startups. Now, to his credit, he's helped past guests like Dan Sugar, Next Tracker, and Matt Harper, Avalon Infinity, maybe you heard those episodes recently, with their fundraising. Perhaps you've heard of these companies. There are many more <laughs> to his credit. Either way, you are going to love that first segment. If you're a budding startup founder, or if you're about to go out for your next round. And I wanted to highlight, as I mentioned, that the podcast lounge is coming up again in North America Smart Energy Week in New Orleans. So I hope that you'll get psyched and make sure to put the podcast lounge on your show map for this year in New Orleans. Second reason that you should keep listening, Tactical Tuesdays have evolved from my own personal desire to really better understand specific topics in the industry that had otherwise escaped me. When I want to learn more about a topic like, say, resource adequacy, now don't skip forward yet, it really is an incredibly useful topic and subject. I go to folks like Strata Solar, who are the best in the industry at what they do. So I tapped my friend Will over at Strata to give me insight and connect the dots. So this episode is emblematic of the kind of deep dive topic we often feature on these Tactical Tuesday sessions. And finally, the third reason you should stick around, many of you show up for practical advice on how to build your clean energy career and your company. This third segment is worth giving a listen, especially if you are about to get a new job or if you yourself are hiring others onto your team. You have got to listen through Hannah Green's 306090 plan for successfully onboarding new team members. So whether you stick around for all three 
or just dip in for one or two, I hope you'll appreciate our taking the time to curate and bring back these archived episodes so that you can continue to grow and learn. What else would you like to know? Why don't you text me 310-634-1780 to get your burning questions answered and an insider's peek of exciting updates coming from Suncast. I do my best to keep up with those texts, so please bear with me as I get back to you. The number again is 310-634-1780. For now, thanks for being here. Now let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with this rewind to the top three Tactical Tuesday episodes of 2020. Okay, first up from episode 220 is Josh Beck from BCI Venture Partners with your fundraising checklist for startups. All right, welcome back to the Podcast Lounge here live at Solar Power International 2019. Podcast Lounge is brought to you by Radiant Reed, produced by Suncast Media in partnership with Solar Energy Trade Shows, SIA and SIPA. We're so glad that you've taken time out of your busy day to come and lounge on our Ottomans and listen a little bit to the advice that we have to give, digging into some of the industry's brightest thought leaders, leading investors, uh, hard-charging CEOs, and today we get a chance to spend a little more time on the topic of fundraising and startup investing. It's a topic that doesn't get nearly enough, uh, enough coverage, frankly, and to talk about that is my good friend Josh Beck from BCI Technology Investments. He's the Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer. Josh, welcome to the show. Well, Nico the Juice Johnson, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Here we go. So, Josh, you and I have had a lot of conversations around the how and why startups fail to raise capital. Yeah. Right. It's an under. It's an ugly uh, reality in this business. You and you guys know a thing or three about raising uh, raising money and about investing in uh, in companies. There are a few small companies you may recognize that have received investments, uh, either lead or co-investing by BCI Technology Investments, namely uh, the smallest one, probably Next Tracker. Tiny, if, tiny startup. If you raise your hand, if you heard of Next Tracker, so BCI led the round that basically brought Next Tracker out of the shadows and into the limelight. Another company, Solar Pile, Avalon Battery. Heard of Avalon Battery? Yep, Solaria. So you guys, as a contract manufacturer, have uh, your hands in the inner workings of the business, right? And you get, to, you get to enable a lot of technology and a lot of really smart people into uh, a, f- a funded and a leveraged position in the business. What, um, what, at a high level for you, has that filter allowed you to really glean from the scale process, the startup process that is happening right now and where that, how that's evolving in the solar industry. Yeah, BCI Technology Investments really has a fundamental competitive advantage. We're, uh, we're, we're supported by some incredible entrepreneurs and incredibly experienced manufacturing executives at BCI Engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Carroll and Tim Bransingham, those guys just have uh, worked in international manufacturing on the contract manufacturing side, supply chain management, quality assurance, uh, logistics for, for their entire careers. And those guys just know how to scale. They know how to execute. And, uh, you know, I think it gives us a competitive advantage because we really look at things strategically and holistically. Mm. It's not about, uh, you know, we often say, hey, man, it's about the, it's about the team first, technology second, uh, because we know that we can help on the execution side. So now it's just about finding really passionate, really qualified uh, entrepreneurs who are ready to kick in doors and just, you know, 
push new technology to the market. Yeah, and if you guys will stick around all the way to the end, as uh, you may have read in the, <clears throat> in the pr proposal or the pitch for this session, we're going to go into the top 10 checklist for every startup team who is raising capital. And, uh, and before we do that, you know, you guys are a $100 million fund uh, looking at renewable energy technology. You, help me understand, I mean, you guys, you have come into the renewable energy industry uh, in, in a time where we're seeing rapid growth and also uh, a lot of folks coming in. How many deals typically get floated by you guys in a typical month to evaluate? Yeah, great question, Nico. So we are, we've got a very stringent due diligence process. This is really born out of uh, National Venture Capital Association best practices. Uh, I come from a little bit of a family office background, so uh, really kind of honed in on some of the big family offices nationally and the way that they look at the due diligence process. We've got a 175 point checklist that we walk through. Our process generally takes about two and a half, three months to walk through. 175 points. That's right. We're looking at a variety of data points. I think the one thing that separates us apart is we look at a lot of qualitative factors. You know, a lot of people can put things through a through a quant engine or a data metrics machine and say, well, quantitatively, this is, this is uh, good or bad. But uh, what we found again and again is that we have got a much higher hit rate whenever we look at, at the quantitative or the qualitative aspects first. Uh, is this is this a passionate CEO? Is this someone who's got, understands their market share, understands the fundamental problems within their market space and can really drive to it? How do you, ma how do you match passion with, pro with the prospect of a good business? I mean, yeah. How do you actually filter for or decide if they have a passion as a CEO? Yeah, we, we really look for people. It's, it's, it's all where they're coming from, their market space, mm -hmm. right? These guys know their market. You know, they go a mile deep in a specific problem statement within an industry that they know well. So these are experienced entrepreneurs who say, man, we work in such a fascinating dynamic industry. Why isn't this one aspect better? Yeah. I'm going to focus relentlessly on resolving that one specific issue. So it's dogged determination combined with just, just a pure focus, you know? Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, one thing I did want to mention, because a lot would be, a lot of folks would be tempted to say, oh, they invested in 20 companies, $100 million, and Next Tracker was in that group. Yeah. The average yeah. investment was probably 20000 you know, for everybody else. Yeah. What was the average investment across those 20 companies? Yeah, we do 3 to $5 million per company. Yeah, so pretty um, well spread out. Yeah, pretty well spread out. The way that I like to look at it is uh, we'll come on with initial funding. We'll set uh, measurable goals and objectives for the CEO team. And, uh, and we'll commit to pro rata follow-on funding um, throughout the progression uh, as a CEO is... is kind of uh, running the ladder. But, you know, a lot of our initial funding goes towards really establishing the very first professionalized sales and marketing teams. Right. These guys have great ideas. They're looking for strategic partners on the contract manufacturing side mm -hmm. who really can just uh, scale their products quickly. So a lot of our initial funding really goes to people who can really push it out to the market quickly. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the strategic objectives from a venture capital perspective, right? Uh, We've, we've talked about it before. These are sort of the cardinal rules for every startup team. It, do you have, uh, in your own mind, sort of a walkthrough, a checklist that you go through when you're evaluating these companies from a strategic readiness? Yes, absolutely. So the very first thing on the list is establish a North Star. Mm. You know, you've got to have, you, you know, it's, it's that kind of Stephen Covey, you know, here, a, a local Salt Lake guy. So we'll give <laughs> him a kind of a shout out. But, you know, that Stephen Covey, you know, begin with the end in mind. So mm -hmm. establish that North Star. 
uh, and, and structure all of your goals and objectives strategically around that and make sure that your team understands what that North Star is. Uh, that way you don't have to spend your time micromanaging the people around you. It's critical. You can't get into the weeds whenever you're leading a new startup organization. You're already wearing 20 hats. You've got to establish a North Star. You've got to communicate it to your team. And you've got to keep people focused on, on looking at the forest through the trees. How often do you come up with startup companies who are pitching to you and, um, and they've just got it all figured out, right? Yeah, yeah. Is, the, is that inspiring for you in terms of what uh, their, their desire to pull to attract your capital? They, they, they don't need anything else. They just need your money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really not interesting to us. You know, we're looking for strategic fits, mm-hmm. right? We're looking for people who are coachable. We're mm-hmm. looking for CEOs who are passionate. Certainly, it's essential that they're passionate, uh, that they're confident in what they're doing. But, man, people got to be coachable, right? Um, Mm-hmm. Market conditions change daily, you know, whether it's the stock market, whether it's on the policy side, state, local, federal, international. You know, I think that this trade war with China has really kind of flushed that out. You yeah. can have the best technology, the best business model in the world. Suddenly, man, you know, policy can implode what you're doing. You've got to master that pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of pivot, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of turns and crossroads in the path to bring technology in particular in the solar industry to market. Right. Um, what are some notable pivots that you've seen just from the folks that you guys have invested in? Oh, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, I think that Avalon Battery is in an interesting pivot right now. They're looking at, uh, the, you know, they were starting to focus on uh, 10 kilowatt, 30 kilowatt hour solutions on the energy storage side. Now they're looking for a little, a lot of the bigger, the bigger stuff, mm-hmm. running for bigger projects. So I think that you've got to listen to the people around you. You've got to listen to the market conditions, right? Uh, anytime you become too entrenched to say, no, 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 this is my technology. This is my swim lane. It's important to establish that, but man, you got to, that's why it's critical to establish uh, great strategic advisors around you yeah. who can say, Hey, listen, we, we understand your focus, but now mm-hmm. it's time to broaden the line of sight because we're seeing this as a market condition. Yeah. One of the things that I think people often get <clears throat> wrong when they're thinking about how to grow their company and within, within the context of how and when do you go out for capital yeah. and yeah. there's, there's, there's this bifurcation companies that are really technology focused and maybe they've got a few really, really smart people, not particularly sales focused and they have an advisor or two that will help them put together a PowerPoint deck and they hit the streets because they're going to use all that capital Mm. to hire a team, right? And there's the other side of coin, which is more of a Jim Collins, get the right people on the bus. Where do you guys fall in, and from a timing perspective as well, in terms of when you're going out to try to attract capital, the idea that I'm going to go and pull down two million to hire this team versus I'm going to hire this team and attract the two million. Yeah. Fill the bus. Fill the bus. It's all about the team. So, I mean, the very first thing that we look for, we've got a five-phase due diligence process, Mm -hmm. and no one gets to phase two unless we're comfortable with the team. We run people through, uh, you know, predictive index testing. I'm looking for a very specific personality set. Does this Um, look like taking personality tests, you mean? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. We put our guys through, and it's not a stringent one. It's a, you know, it's a 12-minute test, essentially. But uh, it's pretty remarkable how we can uh, figure out quite a bit by just kind of watching how the the personalities fall on the spectrum. Mm. And, uh, And, you know, there's... There's no right or wrong team, right? Uh, there's no one specific CEO that we're looking for. Generally, we do look for a sales-oriented type of CEO personality type, mm. but it's all about counterbalance, right? We're looking for a four-person team, a three, four, five-person team who is counterbalancing, and they're watching each other's weak spots. Mm. Look, right? We've all got weak spots, right? And my wife tells me that all the time, right? I got a ton of them. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, 
But as long as you're counterbalancing with people around you and you're creating that supportive ecosystem to say, hey, man, this isn't, you know, know thyself, right? Yeah. Um, you know, as, as long as you're saying to yourself, I'm just not good at this, right? Yeah. I'm good at that. Well, then great. Identify that in yourself and, and surround the people with you that you can fill those blind spots. So you do a lot of this predictive uh, quantitative analysis. One of the things that I find that startups do the worst thing at is actually building their network. Yes. Right? You find, you'll talk to a CEO <laughs> and he says, oh, we're going out. We're raising our seed round. And you check his yeah. LinkedIn and he's got 15 followers. <laughs> right? right? How do you guys right. size up? And, and, and analyze whether or not the team is capable of attracting the type of talent they need, apart from the founding team. Yeah. Like, are they capable of attracting the type of talent? Talk to me a little bit about how you assess network. Because your network is your yeah. net worth. If you never heard that, your network is Absolutely. your Absolutely. Greatest asset. Number one greatest asset. Yeah. It's, better, it's bigger than your technology. It's bigger than any IP package you could possibly have. Uh, it's, it's bigger than any company that you worked for. It's, it's, uh, it's your network. You know, I think that we do a variety of things. We look, you know, we look at LinkedIn profiles and Twitter and those type of things, and that'll give you a certain amount of information. It'll let you know uh, tangentially who that person is associated with. But as we all know, you know, you can shoot a thousand LinkedIn message invites out to people a day, mm. right? So that's not necessarily correlated to what that person's true network is. Uh, we, we sit down with our entrepreneurs uh, right from day one and we say, all right, well, Walk me through your industry experience. Who yeah. do you know there? You know, we, we're not looking for people to name drop, but we're looking for people who have an astute understanding mm -hmm. um, all the way from the grassroots install level, um, all the way through the C-level suite. People who say, yeah, I've worked with these guys. I talked to these guys. You know, I asked these guys for advice. I like to see uh, in, uh, entrepreneurs who are giving away information for free. Mm. And this is one of the things that's really kind of counterintuitive for a lot of entrepreneurs. And take note of this, guys, uh, that are listening today, is that... You know, become a, establish yourself as a thought leader. Right. I'm looking for thought leaders within their industry. And it's really counterintuitive because you say, hey, my time is money, right? But if you are giving away free information about your strategy and establishing yourself as a thought leader, that's going to pay exponentially higher returns than trying to charge someone $150 an hour consulting fee yep. uh, to, to squeak a little bit of cash out of them on the front side. So it's long-term versus short-term games. So I'm looking for people who are in the long game. Yeah, I'm hearing a little Gary Vaynerchuk coming through there. It's brand <laughs> is everything, right? That's right. And, brand uh, is everything. You, if, you're, if you're value forward yes. and giving... It comes back to you, and, and that yeah. might sound a little bit woo and karmic, but it's so true. Yeah. It also sets a tone in the marketplace that you're not afraid of your competitors, right? That's right. Information can come from anywhere. It's yeah. execution that really matters. Absolutely, Nico. You hit the nail on the head. It yeah. is all about the execution. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're connected with a lot of major universities, man. It's, I talk to people who are smarter than me every day of the week. Um, but, you know, nine out of 10 technologies, maybe 99 out of 100 technologies are never going to see the light of day, right? And we're talking about world-beating technologies. And that's all because they're not structuring themselves with the right counsel and they're not putting themselves out there and leveraging their network. So, One of the things that I like to say is, hey, fly your flag every day. Mm -hmm. And, and yep. whenever, out there. you know, kind of getting back to your point here of what I'm looking for, I'm looking for, you know, not how many names you can drop or how many phone numbers you can show me on your phone. I'm looking for people to say, hey, three days a week. I recommend every entrepreneur gets out there three days a week, finds a big networking event, finds somewhere where they can get out there and, and establish themselves. You, ex you always be focused on expanding, solidifying, and leveraging your network. Yeah. One of the things that I find is, um, is really interesting, the growth of a company, this, and even success, right? Like you look at Dan Sugar's success with Next yeah. Tracker, like who Dan Sugar is today is who he was 20 years ago. He hasn't changed very much, right? So That's the right. success and the wealth is you're still going to be the same. If you're, if you're one type of person, you're going to be that person with 
a lot more problems and a lot more money um, yeah. or failures. It's going to just magnify it, right? Success magnifies your character traits. So yeah, what character right. traits do you look for in leadership teams? Mm, man, that's a great question, Nico. And, and you know, sidebar on that one, you know, I've, I've, I often tell the general partners of our fund, you know, they're like, well, what, what CEO are you looking for for our, our companies? And I say, well, I'm looking for, I'm looking for Dan Sugars. And they say, well, there's a problem with that because there's only one Dan Sugar in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm, uh, in, I'm looking for leadership traits. You know, I'm looking for people who aren't afraid to make decisions, mm-hmm. right? You know, one thing that I see, and we'll kind of get to the, back to this on the tactical checklist, but, you know, it's really easy. You're juggling a lot of balls. It's really easy to fall into a, a paralysis by analysis trap, mm-hmm. right? I'm looking for entrepreneurs who are confident in their de- decision-making, who take no prisoners, right? Guys who, whenever I ask them, well, what's your plan B if this doesn't work? They say, what are you talking yeah, about? There, the there is no plan B, mm-hmm. you know? We're going to get out there. We're going to strategically make decisions. Yeah. We're going to float it past our advisors. We're going to come to consensus and we're going to run with it. And hey, if we make the wrong decision, if we're a month or two down the road and we're like, yikes, that was bad, mm-hmm. then you master the pivot. Yeah. And then character flaws? Is there character f- fatal flaws that you see? Yeah, character flaws. I think the biggest one is is uh, guys who get so entwined in, in thinking that they're right. Or that, gals. Yeah, guys are guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you there. Um, you know, I think it's it's people who get so entrenched in their position. Uh-huh. That, that they're just, they stop listening to their strategic advisors and the people around them. And, and keep in mind, strategic advisors are your spouses. They're your friends. Yeah. They're not just people on the business side of your operations. So, uh, so you got to stay, you got to stay uh, solvent in the way that, the way that you're thinking, right? Once you become embedded in a certain way of thinking about things, then all is lost. You got it. Yeah. You got to stay open and coachable. Yeah. Stay open and coachable and go hard or go home. That's right. right? That's right. Chips well, to the center of the table every time. There you go. We're going to take a quick second to thank our sponsors here at the Podcast Lounge. Uh, one of the sponsors that we're really grateful for is EDF Renewables. Haven't had a chance to mention them yet. Going to plug EDF and thank them once again for helping us bring thought leadership to the masses here at Solar Power International 2019. Well, Josh, one of the things that uh, I have just been enthralled by with the way that you guys manage your investment process is a real fidelity to checklists. Yes. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier your 175-point checklist. Uh, it would be really, by the way, it would be really interesting if we could share a lot of the data that we're talking about here and these, this 10-point checklist or 175 points or whatever you can. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, we can push that out. Is that okay? Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, fantastic. You know, the way that I really look at this, Nico, is that this is an ecosystem, right? And and the companies that I invest in, it's it's not about me. This isn't a one one yeah. horse one horse show, right? We're all we're all stronger as a collective. We're all here in in, in renewable energy, pushing out new technologies, and one technology is going to solidify the next. We can't be afraid of competition. That's a good thing for all of us. Yeah, and it shows that you do uh, you do what you preach, which is Absolutely. sharing the information. Right? Sure. So here we go with the. Uh, tactical top 10 checklist that every startup team needs yes. when they're going out for, for funding. And I should mention that you guys are focused pre- predominantly on A round capital, right? A and B round capital. And B round right. Capital. So we're not so. afraid of uh, pre-revenue investments, but we're really looking for people who, when we take a hard look at the, at the hardware software that they're developing, mm-hmm. we really look at it and see, uh, yeah, these guys really understand their market and we can push this as a minimally viable product out to the market within a six to 18 month period. Okay. You want to do this as a 10 down to one or... How you uh, let's do this as a one down to 10. All right. All right. Number all right. one. Number one. So exhaust all non-dilutive options, friends and family, angel capital options uh, before you kind of launch a formal funding round. The reason that this is important, uh, listeners, is because serious investors will ask you, 
if you personally and those closest to you have skin in the game, right? Uh, one thing that I found again and again is, man, if you're taking money from, uh, from Uncle Joe and, and your friends, right, you're far more or less likely to abandon ship halfway into an idea, right? Yeah. You're committed to those people around you, right? You've yeah, when got you got Aunt Thelma's, her uh, retirement fund, Yes. Partially, partially invest in your company. That's right. That's right. So I love to, I love entrepreneurs who have skin in the game, right? And uh, like, for example, I, I recently listened to an entrepreneur who's, who's looking really good in terms of investing. He said, hey, man, I'm, I remortgaged my house for this. Hmm. I was like, I'm all in. I'm yeah. all in. The and, we, and we look at this, right? Yeah. yeah. Number two. Number two, register as a C-Corp. Why right? a C-Corp? Uh, Everybody's C-Corp. an LLC. It's, That's it's true. way cheaper. That's true. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little counterintuitive from a tax perspective, though. If you're looking for, it's in, and listen, an LLC, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way, and, and there's no right or wrong answer per se. Mm-hmm. But if you are launching a formal investment round where you're trying to raise multi-million dollars, sophisticated investors are going to be looking, they've got their own tax planning, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of high net worth individuals or a lot of corporate, uh, corporate entities that invest in, in earlier stage technologies. Uh, being a Delaware C, uh, C Corp or just a C Corp in general, it has uh, the, stru- uh, the tax structure. It's, it's mainly a tax structure yeah. issue, but it's just much more easy to understand whenever you're talking to a guy like me, a chief investment officer, and you say, uh, uh, I'm a C Corp, I know exactly what that means. All right, number three. Uh, number three, uh, identify smart money investors. So we, we all make this mistake. Smart money. smart money investors, man. Whenever you are, whenever you're in the trenches and you've got this idea and you're trying to develop your technology at the same time that you're, that you're raising capital, it's really easy to say, Hey, anyone, anyone who I can write, get a check from, mm. that's who I'm running with. Right. Yeah. In the long term, that's going to cost you more time and time is money in the yeah. long run for a CEO. If you have to spend a day educating them on why you're doing a certain decision. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. That's so right. You're, so this is focused really on strategics, right? Folks that have a, an alignment in your industry. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, alignment in the industry or people who, are, who, who can help you, mm. can help you with in-kind services, people who can help you with, uh, with strategically connecting you to other individuals. Those are the individuals where it's, it, once again, getting back to leveraging your network. Yeah. Right? A strategic investor is not someone who writes a check and you never hear from them again mm-hmm. until it's a month later and they say, how are we doing? Are you ready to give me my money back? Yeah. Right? Uh, it's someone who's saying, hey, how are you doing? Can I connect you to anyone else? Yeah. That's who you're looking for. Yeah, I love that. We had... The conversation I had with Jenya about how they originally launched Pvel, right? He he's talked about hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars in design services. Yes, just iterating on his PowerPoint deck alone, he was like, "That was two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> worth of in-kind services from a board member that was also an investor." Yeah, right. Talk about good strategic alignment. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Number we're on number, number four. Number four. That's right. This goes back to the Stephen Covey. Mm. Begin with the end in mind. So research and practice articulating your exit strategy. Exit is everything. So to whom, when, at what price am I going to exit and build your business plan around it. So this is really essential. So whenever you're looking for a strategic investor, someone to put real money, big money, multi-million dollars into your company, they're going to ask, what's the exit strategy? And you need to mm. be really clear in your mind's eye. Hey, I'm selling this to Siemens five years. This is my price. Mm. And everything that I've developed, built my business plan around is, is in, in regards to that end goal. So what if you want to build a legacy company? What if you don't want to sell? What if you want to build a company that's going to be a billion or $5 billion? Yeah, I think the it's a different box, drop box. The next 
I think it's a different strategic investor. Okay. You know, you're talking more of kind of an IPO plan, okay. right? Yeah. You know, that's that's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse because that's not what I look at, right? Gotcha. I'm looking for companies that we can that we can really drive the market. Right. Nothing wrong with going IPO. Yeah, you know, which, and, which again goes back to know what you're trying to accomplish. That's and, right. And know what kind of fund you want to approach. Right? Well, and it's one of those core questions you should ask your whenever you're talking to investors. Don't be afraid to ask them questions. Mm. Hey, you know, I love entrepreneurs that come to me and say. You know, what's the plan? What type of entrepreneur are you looking for? What type right. of exit are you looking for? Because if someone comes to you and says, yeah, I'll give you $10 million, but I, you know, I want $20 million back in three years, you're going to say, well, sorry, that's not part of my strategic strategy. I'm going to move on to the next person. There you go. Don't get bogged down in trying to chase money that you have no chance in actually getting. And if you could do that over the phone or email, much better than having to sit in their office and have that conversation. <laughs> you just drove three hours out of it. That's right. To. All right. So that's right. well, number six. No, we're on number five. Number five, uh, establish daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly goals. So build deliverable schedules and plans. I'm big on the project management side. Mm-hmm. So you got to build strategic uh, schedules and project plans around what you're trying to do because it's easy to get lost, right? You're pulled in a thousand different directions. It's a natural course in the tra- uh, 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 a natural part of the trajectory of a startup organization, right? So having your own deliverable schedule that you're overlaying on yourself, it keeps you personally accountable and it keeps those around you. It, it helps them keep you accountable saying like, hey, you know, why, why are you doing that over there? It says on your plan, you should be yeah doing this by the end of the week and oh man you're right i gotta get back on it and focus yeah so i hear from that is the ability at the executive level to articulate why each piece of the of the machine as it were yeah. is rowing right in, in a specific right. direction and that everyone knows which direction the vehicle is ultimately headed absolutely That's that north star you yeah. alluded to in the very beginning well and you're going to attract better people that way everyone wants a chief everyone wants to know where we're going and what we're doing right i think that mm-hmm. that's a natural thing that's a that's just straight up human nature yeah All right, number six. Yes, build a strategic board of advisors. This kind of all gets back to leveraging networks. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I always look for, you know, I'm often told by people like, well, you don't want that person of advisors. They're just always going to be arguing with you. Hey, yes, men and women not allowed, Mm -hmm. right, in my world. I'm looking for people. I always surround myself with people who beat me up, Mm -hmm. right? And and people often say like, man, that, that was brutal. You know, yeah, and, uh, and no, I'm I'm looking at that. that makes me a better uh, a better person. It makes me take a more critical eye at things, and it makes me refine and always tighten the screws on myself. And and I think it's just mm-hmm. one of those type of personal characteristics we all need to kind of focus on. Yeah, no, yeah. it's so, it's so true. And if you don't have that mentor, or that advisor in yes. your business, that when you share the idea that 14 people have told you that's a great idea, and then they they <laughs> knock it out of the sky and they yeah. they pull a piece off of it and they ex- examine it very deeply yes. and make you feel. Uh, somewhat terrible about whether or not you've evaluated it yourself. That's that's when you know that you've got someone who really Absolutely. cares about your success, not necessarily. They want to make sure that you succeed. That's right. That's yeah. your best friend. Yeah. You, need, you need to find people right. like that. I encourage everyone yep. to find people who are going to be hard on them. Yeah, yeah. I like to I like to think of it. It's it's someone who's pointing. They're pointing at potential uh, flaws in the business plan that are going to impact and hurt someone they they want to care about long term. Right. Exactly. They don't want to see you go through pain, and they're yeah. going to point out the things that. Perhaps you haven't thought critically about. Number seven. Number seven, avoid paralysis by analysis at all costs. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, I think that what is that, that saying, time kills all deals? Well, oh, yeah. time also kills all startups. Mm. Um, you know, you got to leverage, you got to leverage your boards of advisors uh, to, to really force decision making, right? So then like get in, I, I love to schedule weekly or bi-weekly meetings uh, where I say, listen, these are the core decisions that I need to go. And if uh, in a week over week, if someone says, hey, you haven't decided on this yet, I'm like, you know, you're right. We got to decide right now. Let's mm-hmm. do it. Number eight. 
Number eight, focus on organizational speed and efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what it's all about, right? We, we live in a uh, renewable energy industry where it's all about install, co- install costs mm-hmm. and time reduction and efficiency. It's just the world we live in. And that's going to make, as an organization, you got to get to that minimally viable product. You got to get it out to the market. Don't worry about it being perfect. If it's 75% there, uh, get the sales under the, uh, in the books, continue to iterate and, and drive to market. How do you test for velocity in a startup? Oh, man, that's a great question. There's no one answer to that one, Nico. That's a, that's a great one. That's an existential yeah, one we're, we're going to have to come back to. Yeah, I think we are because that's, I mean, <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, when you are looking at a company that has the wherewithal and the ability from a technology perspective and they've yeah. got their act together, yeah. velocity is what they need. That's right. And that capital is going to give them velocity. And what you're really, like, what you're judging is, like, if I pour gasoline in this vehicle or if I if we'll, we'll use a renewable energy if I charge these batteries do we have the right motor in yeah. place to actually accelerate as fast as we want yeah that's right I mean you know we're part of a larger group of strategic investors who, mm-hmm. who do a lot of uh, clean tech and other type of investing and and I often hear them comment and say well you know this this looks really good these guys have a lot going on and they say yeah but I've been hearing today the same thing that I heard three years ago mm-hmm. about them right yeah. so then you got to keep driving forward it's so so critical to make that decision because if people start talking about that you're going to see you're going to find yourself at the you know at the edge of a cliff okay we're down to the last two number yes. nine number nine balance your team so this goes back to the know thyself so build a team that you can uh, that can watch your back and fill your blind spots so uh, the secret to success is uh, to your personal success is the company's success. Mm. So then you really, really got to you got to you, you got to be holistic in the same way that you're looking at your product. Don't worry so much about your product being perfect. Worry about your team being uh, being uh, well-rounded. Yeah. All right. As we round out our top 10 checklist for every startup team, we're on. Number 10, Josh yes, Beck, what is the number secret, 10? The secret to our success. So then it is the uh, top six things that we look for in order of importance. So whenever we run through due diligence process, you know, we use a weighted importance uh, factor scale, right? Um, number one is team, followed closely behind by technology, but nowhere near as important as the team itself. Number three is the market viability. Four is financial viability. Five is operational execution plan. And number six is the exit potential. So that's exactly how we walk through every decision-making matrix. Mm-hmm. You don't get to one step, the next step, until you've finished the one previously. Well, it's a, it is a wild and crazy world out there. There <laughs> are a lot of options as a startup uh, founder or executive when you're out raising capital. Uh, any parting thoughts that you might impart on, uh, on a, a, a CEO uh, of a startup here, an entrepreneur that's trying to take their company to the next level? Yeah. Fly your flag. Fly your flag everywhere you go. Live and breathe it. You know, if you personally are not passionate about what you're talking about, then you can't expect the people around you to be passionate. So that's my number one thing. You got to live and breathe this. Uh, You know, you also got to think about your own personal kind of mental sanity. That's why it's important to surround yourself with people who are going to be supportive and balance your team. You know, if you burn out as an individual, that's your fault and your fault alone, right? So find ways to recharge your batteries and then always be passionate about what you're doing. Yeah, it's personal responsibility. That's right. Josh Beck is the Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of BCI Technology Investments. Thank you for joining us here at the Podcast Lounge. Thank you, Nico. Yeah, this has been fun. We'll have to have you back on a webinar. (laughs) I'd love to. Go through this a little more in detail. (laughs) Very good. Well, and for all those listeners out there, I got to say, you know, my checklist of things to listen to, 
That's uh, that's Marketplace with Kai Rizdal. I read the Washington Post. I read the Wall Street Journal, and I listen to Suncast. That's Thank it. You. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780. I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number. 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know. Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you and I hope to see you there. And I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. Hey, you're listening to Suncast, so I know that you are a thinker who likes to seek out the opinions of others to help inform and guide your own path. And as such, you probably like to debate or at least like to watch interesting debates. Did you miss out May 26th when we had our first session of the Great Debate Series 2021, The Road to New Orleans that we're co-hosting with Solar Power Events and my friend Tor Solar Fred Valenza? If so, fear not. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate. There you can watch a riveting debate that we had on the different types of solar financing and which is best for consumer and installer. PPA, PACE, loans, you be the judge. Also, join us for the next installments. We'll have one in June, another in July, August, and live in September. I hope that you'll join us. I hope that you will go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate and learn more about the upcoming debates. If you'd like to partner with us on producing the Great Debate Series, please feel free to reach out. You've probably just heard the other information about how you could text me or you could email me nico at mysuncast.com second in the queue we have a primer on how resource adequacy works for the california energy market with will mitchell of strata solar from episode 274 will welcome to suncast my friend it is a long time coming i'm so stoked to have you uh, not only a long time listener but a friend and advocate out in california for all things solar and renewables man your track record in the california market not just with strata but before at recurrent and so many other roles it is an emblem of how to grow a career and be open to the possibility of new ideas. I'm glad to have you on the show today. We're going to dive deep on one specific topic, but it's good to hear your voice again. Nico, thanks for having me on. Always great to be talking to you. Absolutely, man. Hey, I know that things are a little bit uh, wacky everywhere these days, and you're a volunteer firefighter. Any any funny stories lately uh, as, a, as a volunteer out there trying to save lives that are uh, perhaps not even uh, COVID-related? Funny you ask, Stinson Beach, where I live, it's a real small town, about half of downtown blew up last week from a propane explosion, rocked our house, which is up the hill, rocked pretty much every house in town, Holy myself, smokes. my friends, uh, my father-in-law all went 
kind of bombing down the hill of the firehouse to find like three buildings in downtown Stinson completely on fire. And uh-huh. uh, that was a heck of a way to start a Tuesday just a week ago. And I got to put hats off to my, uh, my father-in-law who I live next door. He's 72 years old, was manning the engine all day, just like he always does. He's been on the fire department over 50 years and, wow. um, you know, no one got hurt, which is great, but it's another, just, you know, this community comes together when stuff gets crazy. So funny enough, that was a wild week last week. You guys, if, uh, if anybody has gotten used to the idea of wearing a respirator or, a, uh, or a filter, it's, uh, firefighters. How do you get used to that feeling that you're like suffocating with this thing on your face? Honestly, the best I can tell you is you got to stop and focus on the breathing for a minute because sometimes you feel like you're hyperventilating and it's pretty weird, but you literally just got to take a minute, slow it all down, just like anything else. The art of being present. Well, look, we're going to get present right now with a very real and present, perhaps danger, but certainly reality for our market. We're going to do so through the lens of unpacking what I think is a complex topic. It probably for many like me is a topic that most won't have a whole lot of experience with unless you're like really down the rabbit hole of policymaking and rate making and uh, developing utility scale solar projects, frankly. And that is a term called resource adequacy. It wasn't that long ago you and I were on a phone call and I was like, wait, 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 rewind. What is RA? And you sort of took for granted that I knew what it was. And I, I'm the first to admit that I don't always know all these terms, but I understand there's a term that folks colloquially refer to as RA. Can you help me unpack what is resource adequacy and, and why do I care? Absolutely. It's about reliability. It's about ensuring the resources are there for reliability, your bottom dollar commitments. In California, reliability uh, or resource adequacy was a originally a legislative construct that became a regulatory construct after the energy crisis, uh, the Enron energy crisis. And it essentially, the load-serving entities in California have to show on a year-ahead and a month-ahead basis that they've got all the resources they need plus a margin of error to keep the lights on throughout their service territories. This is kind of the old adage, it's not how much water is going to flow through the pipes is how big the pipes are or vice versa, right? Like the idea, I think about it in Central America where the markets are much smaller and they have a lot of similar things to think about from a demand perspective. They have to consider when everything's turned on and the hottest day of the summer, how much power is going to be drawn down. And then they sort of back into how would we serve that load? Is that, is that sort of similar? Yeah, so there's there's constantly forecasting going on from the independent system operator, the public utility commission, frankly, the individual load serving entities, whether that's like a PG&E or a community choice aggregator. And they're all coming together and saying, all right, we need X power in January, February, March, April on a month basis. And then on an annual basis, we need you know even more power. And then they go out and they procure it. Solar gets resource adequacy credit natural gas units get resource, every different resource in the system, it's a certain amount of resource adequacy credit. And frankly, it's where most of the value is. And so when you talk about projects getting financed, solar projects, traditional gas projects, usually in California, it's because of the value that they are providing for resource adequacy, how much money they're getting paid for resource adequacy. In most instances, is kind of the underlying financial instrument that the banks are lending against and investors are interested in. I get it because this is the actual power that can be provided rather than the energy that you can yield, right? That's right. 
That's right. This is not energy. This is power. That's right. This is like saying, instead, my car goes 300 miles per hour. I have a car with a 450 SS power block and it's capacity. And just because you're paying somebody for resource adequacy doesn't mean you're calling on them. It's, you know, it's as much about an availability and insurance payment. It's to ensure that it's a reliability payment. That's really what, what it's here. It's essentially what peakers are built for, right? Traditionally, it is what peakers were built for. But as storage has come in, it's totally upended the industry. As solar plus storage has come in, it's totally upended. You know, it's no longer just about natural gas power plants. And frankly, a lot of the original RA construct was built around performance expectations of gas plants. And we all know storage can do stuff faster and it's changing the market fast. Interesting. Well, for those who don't know, you actually spend some time outside of the solar industry. Feel free to give some context there, if you will. I know that you have experience sort of about the RA markets um, developing all the way back to Enron. I'd love to hear some, some about that. But as we do, I'd love for you to continue, because part of this is to set a bit of the stage for Thursday, help set the stage for why RA matters, in particular with regards to storage applications. Absolutely. So in California, the California market, resource adequacy is you know one of the biggest drivers, both for supply and demand, right? The developers are always looking to see, is there enough RA in the market? Is it clearing? Our price is low, our price is high. And then citing projects around that, and then bidding projects offering resource adequacy values. And so coming out of the energy crisis about 19, 20 years ago, it was all about natural gas. And so there was natural gas plants getting built with getting long-term RA. So the RA can get picked up in short-term as little as like a month increment, sometimes one year, two years, or 10 or 20 years. And so of course, those short-term strips are usually for existing assets. So right now in California, the existing assets that would be going after that are almost exclusively natural gas. Yeah. But all the new storage that's getting built, those are largely are on RA contracts. Wow. Um, okay. Solar plus storage, a lot of RA value there. Now you're getting rec value and energy value with solar plus storage, but the underlying investment driver for new development in California is largely a resource adequacy payment over a long period of time, 10, 20 years, etc. You shared an article with me recently that for me kind of pulled back the veil and I'd like for us to talk about it and certainly hat tip to the folks at Woodmac Green Tech Media. Jeff St. John wrote this article back on June 15th about a bit of a scuffle happening at the regulatory level around RA in California that, in my view, didn't get nearly the airtime that it potentially should have given what you've described to me as a tectonic shift in rate making or you know, regulation and policy. Can you help me unpack what are the two sides of this argument and how is it going to play itself out specifically with regards to solar plus storage? Huge changes happening in the resource adequacy market in California. So about two weeks ago, the Public Utility Commission voted on what I think probably can be described as a fairly controversial decision here in California that essentially took the local control or local procurement of resource adequacy largely away from the community choice aggregators. And so I think it's worth just kind of describing, you know, the the community choice aggregators are the alternatives to the IOUs. So in PG&E territory, there's at this point like 12 or so community choice aggregators that are known as load serving entities. And they all go out and 
procure their own resources, short-term, long-term, et cetera. Where it gets a little tricky, the Public Utility Commission doesn't exactly have regulatory control or regulatory authority over the community choice aggregators. And so you quickly get into this conflicting area where the Public Utility Commission and the ISO are responsible for reliability, but they don't necessarily have the authority to regulate these entities who are procuring for reliability. And it's created some complications. Now, to the CCA's credit, they are procuring like crazy. There's probably a CCA solicitation every month, more than that if you're including short-term, long-term. But the Public Utility Commission had some concerns about market power, had concerns about reliability. They weren't necessarily sure they were liking what was going on. So they actually went ahead and implemented a new resource adequacy structure that puts it back in the hands of the IOUs who they regulate. So it's, there's definitely some you know, serious, serious policy battles going on in California between these up-and-coming CCAs who are all about local control, local management, local resources, and then the State Public Utility Commission regulating the IOUs. And we all know the IOUs and the CCAs you know, are, are not exactly friends. They're at odds, yeah. They're totally at odds. And so this decision just happened about two weeks ago. The reality is, I don't think anybody's exactly sure, even the CCAs, as to like the long-term implications. People are still trying to figure out exactly how this works. There's some working groups, but it's a monumental change because the way the IOUs look at local power is a heck of a lot different than a CCA that looks at local power and who pays for it, what's important to each party, what's important to PG&E when procuring local resources is probably not the same as what's important to marine clean energy when they're procuring local resources. So this is a big deal in California. You know, it's exacerbated by the fact that CCAs are now serving nearly half of PG&E's customers. As pointed out in this article, it was a huge growing contingent a force we reckon with in Southern California. And, and I would argue, as they say, as goes California, so goes the nation. Like this isn't, this is a growing trend across the U.S. So all eyes right now are on this CPUC decision. And of course, the CPUC and the utilities are, are going to be sort of in agreement on the way that these decisions should be made. And it's, it, it's funny to me, almost laughable. There's a quote here by the CPUC commissioner. He says, having numerous entities buying small strips of local re- resource adequacy is not cost effective and creates market power concerns. And he goes on to say that getting a single entity purchasing power consolidation with PG&E and SEE will help to avoid that. And it says, a view supported by both utilities. Uh, duh, of course, it's supported by both utilities that you just gave all of the buying power in the, in the state back to instead of with the CCAs. <laughs> How do you see this playing out as it relates to the numerous RA solicitations that solar providers and storage providers were bidding on? Uh, do you think this is going to have an impact on the ability to compete? Is it going to, you know, is it going to, are we going to see market shifts on the kinds of assets deployed, the kinds of companies who are able to deploy those assets competitively? What are your prognostications on the impact of this consolidation of buying power? So yet to be seen, for one, there's some working groups that still have to happen. And so, of course, you know, especially in California, the regulatory process never ends. I also suspect that not this legislative session, because it's pretty much focused on the budget and COVID response, but next legislative session come January, this this is probably going to be the CCA's number one or number two issue. I haven't talked to them about it, but that's just my gut. So in California, 
when you don't like something, you go to the legislature and, and try to get a law changed. And I got to hand it to the CCAs. They have incredibly growing clout. They've got good staff, good team up there. So I think this story is far from over, even if you de- do see some more working groups. The reality is for the developer community, let's call it the greenfield developer community that's looking to put new steel in the ground, this has the biggest uncertainty because those short-term strips that you referenced there, those are for existing assets. Those are for and largely existing gas plants. I mean, there's not a whole bunch of solar or certainly any storage that I'm aware of in California that is maybe one project, but that doesn't have an existing contract on it. So those are for uncontracted resources that are old and just kind of keeping the train going. When it comes to new resources being built in local areas, you know, before, let's take East Bay, for example, clean energy, big CCA, great team doing a lot of local resource procurement in the Oakland load pocket, which is really complicated. Now, now the question is, okay, so East Bay valued that development in the Oakland load pocket, not just for reliability purposes, but also for resiliency purposes, economic development purposes, workforce development purposes, kind of their own energy future purposes. The question is, is PG&E going to prescribe that same consideration, that same value to someone bidding a project in downtown Oakland, which frankly might be a little more expensive than a project outside of the city, but still has the same RA value electrically. How does that work, right? So now these local entities, which are really trying to jumpstart their clean energy futures in their economy, there's competing priorities, there's competing interests. Who has the final say? This decision basically says the IOUs have the final say for now. For now. And it looks like it's also going to, in the short term, stymie some of the ongoing activity. I mean, frankly, there are joint procurement agreements among at least the Bay Area CCAs. And there's a you know small concern right now <laughs> with wildfire prevention and blackouts that are being imposed by PG&E that local RA and the CCAs are actively procuring against to back up these communities who face these brownouts and blackouts and and wildfire situations. There's a lot of consternation, a lot of nail biting, I would say, in the market at the moment. And it could go either way. It'd be interesting. It will be interesting to watch how the local CCA market and the local Greenfield developers respond and put themselves together. As we monitor the situation, certainly will be helping keep us on top of the options. And we will be uh, letting you all know how you can take action and mostly how you can stay informed so that we as an industry can help align these policies to benefit our goals and needs and, and purposes. In the meantime, I want to thank Will Mitchell, the Director of Origination from Strata, for his valuable insight and uh, profound uh, explanation of a, a subject that I had very little knowledge of before. I would encourage you all to check out the episode that we have coming on Thursday with Will and his teammates from Strata as they talk about a massive battery project that they've been busy at work at through the COVID-19 process. That's coming Thursday. Will, thank you for taking your time to be here on Suncast with us today. Nico, thanks for having me. Always great speaking with you and your listeners. And last but certainly not least, from episode 303, here's how and why to put together a 30-60-90 plan for new hires with Hannah Green from Pice. Okay, today we are back with Hannah Green of Pice. And as promised in our interview with Hannah, we are going to dig into a framework that she and I both have used in our career that's a 30, 60, 90 
plan. As we discussed before, Michael Watkins famously framed this out for both of us and for millions of others in a book called The First 90 Days, which we highly recommend that you check out. Today, we're going to dig into this framework, but I want to ask Hannah to first give a high-level understanding of what the framework is, why to use it, who it's useful for uh, both transitioning, starting a new job, hiring managers, etc. Sure. I think of it more as a career transitions framework. So you could use it certainly as a manager who's onboarding people. I think especially with so many of us working remote, having a more structured approach to onboarding and goal setting and expectation sharing, you know, those, these frameworks just help us be better communicators and, and help feel connected with the team, even when we're all behind screens. Um, so I, I found it really helpful as as somebody hiring and onboarding people to, to use these frameworks and to lean on them. And I've received feedback from folks who are coming on board that it, it, you know, it just helps everybody get on, on the same page and provides a lot of just security to, to know what expectations are and to work towards those. It's also a framework that I've used in my own career transitions, either a new role within a company, um, because even if you're in the same company, if you switch teams or you take on new responsibilities, you're going through a career transition. It is really helpful to not just carry forward everything you'd been doing before, but to actually pause and make a plan for yourself and think about how you're going to tackle your new role or your new team, your new responsibilities differently and, and to make a plan for that. You know, obviously, it can also be used and maybe is most commonly thought of as being used when you switch companies. I think you know, there, there are certainly companies out there who have a really strong onboarding process and training program. But there are a lot that don't. And so coming in, if you are new to a company and owning some of that responsibility for thinking through your learning styles and your goals and how you're going to tackle those first 90 days, I mean, truly, if you're a senior leader or a team leader, that's your responsibility. It's essential. But even if you're new to the industry or new to a role and working your way up, coming in and having these frameworks for yourself, it's going to change the conversation you have with your manager and set you up for success. Hannah, in our previous discussions, you've explained to me how in your career, you've often had to essentially create your own role, self-manage and move into positions of leadership with relatively little guidance. I presume that has caused for you an opportunity to begin to create these kinds of tools that both you use to manage your own productivity and expectations, as well as those that eventually report to you and work on your team. Can you give me a bit of background about how and why you chose the, the first 90 days and Michael Watkins' work as a framework and the way that you've begun to implement it into your work style and how you use that as a tool for your team and others that you coach? I think that's a challenge that every manager faces, right? Nobody hands you a playbook, right? It says, here's how to do your job, right? So much of being a manager is coming into a role with a strong skill set and your capabilities and then being creative, right? And, and making things happen in the moment. Part of that, though, especially in a startup environment or a high growth environment, is you, know, you need to move faster, right? And so you need tools that help you make decisions, stay in touch with colleagues, set goals and expectations at a really quick cycle time. So I, I've developed some frameworks and templates for different parts of how I run or manage teams um, to help us communicate better, faster, stay on the same page. And again, you know, how are we constantly improving and, and keeping up that cycle time? I was introduced to, to Watkins as part of my MBA program and uh, found a lot to love in his books and his templates. There are also you know, many, many other 
business writers and contributors who have talked career transitions and coming up to speed. I think one of the challenges that I observed is, you know, not everybody is going to want to put in the time to reading a whole book. And I've certainly given this book away and, and others away to people are jobs. But when you're starting a job, is that really also the right time to learn about new theory, right? And, and it's, um, it's really hard to tell someone you need to learn your job, come up to speed on the subject matter material. And here, by the way, is a new of managing your transition, right? That's a lot to take on at one time. Um, so I developed this, this framework, not just to facilitate 30, 60, 90 day goals for myself and for others, but actually to get on a path for yourself and for your team for staying in touch around goals all year round. So this is actually a a check-in template that I use and that most of my team has adapted to fit their needs, what they need from their manager in a check-in to provide some of that structure. When you're first getting to know your role or your managers as a manager, you're first getting to know a new teammate and onboarding them. Structure helps with communication, right? It just gives everybody the framework to be a little more relaxed, more comfortable and, and get on the same page. So I think it's a really powerful tool for those first 30, 60, 90 days, but I don't believe in single use items. Like my kitchen has no single use items in it, right? You got to <laughs> make, make things that serve you in the long run. And so the idea of this tool is after you get through the first 30, 60, 90 days as manager or a member of a team, you can take what you like and leave what you don't and make it a check-in for, for make it a check-in tool for your ongoing communications uh, with you and your manager, you and your colleagues over time. So the framework that you use and you've shared with us, and we're going to share a version of this out to our, our tribe, does a great job of not only setting expectations, but giving specific pointers for the employee versus the manager on how to use the tool. I love that you said transitions are difficult and exciting. I'm just going to read from some of the text here. A framework alone can't make a transition easy, but it can speed up the learning process so that you gain clarity on your new role and goals sooner and deliver value to the team faster. Transitions are magic. There's a tremendous power in being new to a team or a role. Use the magic. And this is something that I think a lot of people miss, this one little nugget right here. Ask tons of questions and don't be afraid to ask for clarification whenever you don't understand something. What I feel like some people miss in the opportunity to move into a new role is they have the egoic position of, I feel like I should probably know this, or I don't want to appear like I'm not smart enough to get this. And that is such a dangerous place to be. How do you leverage then this 30, 60, 90 planning tool to set appropriate expectations, to let someone's guard down about that, that fear of need to impress, and to give them the tools to actually impress by accomplishing the small goals and getting that sense of momentum? To your point about asking questions, people are excited generally, I think, you know, to, to welcome new people to a team. And, you know, if you can create as a manager, that culture in those first 30 days, that's your time to ask questions, to be in training, to get to know people. That's part of an organization's responsibility is to create that culture that we welcome new people. We invite their questions. We want to make them feel comfortable. And so I think from just the, the organizational perspective, make sure that that's your culture. Embody that, create that, you know, be a continuous learning growth mindset kind of place to work, right? That's where we all want to work, where we can learn new things every day. So I think that's for the managers or leaders in the group, create a growth mindset culture that extends 
around somebody's 30 days, but that really comes into play when you invite new, new teammates in a, in a big way um, and make a show of it, right? Ask questions, provide training. Um, it, I think the other element of that is in the first 30 days, especially while we're all working remote, I advise managers to set up structured meetings for their new hires, particularly in the first two weeks. Make sure they come onto the team with their, you know, I wouldn't say don't, don't load their calendar for the first two weeks. You know, they need time to study the materials you're going to give them and, and get up to speed, but make sure they have touch points, right? And use your relationship capital within the company to structure those meetings ahead of time. And I think that sends the, the, the message to the new hire that those first 30 days are about connecting and learning. And that's a real critical point that Watkins makes is to really spend time getting to understand the organization, how you fit in it. Where's the balance between giving a new hire a certain amount of, of power in scheduling those meetings for themselves and discovering whose role is whose versus, as you said, loading up their calendar? And when you say structure the two weeks of meetings, are you referring to specifically, what kind of meetings would you be encouraging that you set up or that they set up for themselves? The method I've been using uh, for, for what it's worth, I've been setting up meetings in the first two weeks for, for people who are coming on board. And I've prioritized people who are division leaders or team leaders whose calendars it can be really difficult to get onto. So if I've got somebody coming in in a managerial role and they need to connect with three or four directors across different departments, I'm going to book that meeting two weeks out before this person's on team so that in the first week they're meeting those key decision makers and they're able to introduce themselves, tell them what their role is, ask about, you know, who as a director, what are your priorities for your team? How am I going to work with your team? So I, I take it on me as a, as myself as the hiring manager to make those high impact meetings happen and get them on calendars early on so that people get to know my new hire and we can meld together as a team. I work in a matrixed organization. So building those early connections across teams is essential. And then those managers, those other directors can go to their teams and say, you know, new hire X is on board. They're going to work with you in Y and Z ways, right? And the message gets out faster about how we're going to invite this person in and work with them. I think the the other meetings that I try to structure in the first two weeks um, are trainings, right? This is that that learning time. And by as a manager, by getting those on calendars in advance, I give the trainers plenty of time to prepare their materials. I'm able to help um, identify the learning objectives are working with some of those trainers um, if, if that's not already in place. And the new person hits the ground already in a learning environment um, where they can ask a ton of questions off the bat. If I were onboarding somebody who was very new to the industry or who for whom this was one of their first job or first few jobs, I might actually structure out a whole month right? And, and make that a little bit longer because they would be learning a whole lot about office and work culture in general. I'm hiring experienced professionals. Um, so I take on those first two weeks as, as a way to get them the meetings and the resources that they need to be successful off the bat. And then really transitioning more into that you know coach and guide mode after that as they figure out that next set of meetings and, and key folks they want to meet with. I do take the time to provide them suggestions um, but I, I, you know, you, you want to help them get up to speed and then pass them the ball to go run with it. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something, lest someone watching 
who themselves is moving into a career change and thinking, how do I structure my first 90 days for, for, for success? We're going to get to those very tactical uh, questions. But I want to flip the script for you in thinking just a minute. What Hannah just expressed is, from a managerial perspective, how you can ease the roadmap, which for every manager that's out there, you've always, uh, and everyone has to think about, how do I make my job easier, their job easier, and everyone else accept them as a part of the team? And what Hannah just described is possibly the best method, certainly that she and I know of. Uh, there may be better, better ones, but it's a really, really effective tool. There's a strong likelihood you may be moving into a company that doesn't have an organized manager and doesn't have a process like this. You should and now can, with our, with our help, feel empowered to, from the very beginning, from two weeks out from onboarding, after you get your acceptance letter, manage up. And this is a really important skill that you will learn as you grow in your career. And what do I mean by manage up? It means to identify the gaps in the organization and help from your body of knowledge fill those gaps. And that helps to not only show your willingness to be proactive, but it helps to gain a certain amount of buy-in at the executive level that you are willing to do work that's not on your job description. So if you flip this idea, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that you get your acceptance letter and within a day or two, you respond to your hiring manager with, hey, just in an effort to make my transition easier, I, might I suggest the following activities? I don't know if you guys have a, a plan specifically, or maybe you inquire, like, would you explain to me what the onboarding process looks like? And if you get nothing back, then you can say, may I make some suggestions that, I, that would certainly help me onboard in a way that I feel would be efficient and effective so I can get started uh, to achieving our goals. What do you think about that, Hannah? Yeah, I think definitely reaching out to ask and, and letting them know I am fired up, ready to go, can't wait to join the team. A few things that, that I think have seen be really effective for people coming on to teams. If somebody doesn't ask, you know, letting your manager know, Hey, I'm, I'm happy to start, you know, connecting with people on LinkedIn before my first day. Here's a really short bio, a photo, a link to my LinkedIn and my email address. Please feel free to share this with, with the team and colleagues. So you introduce yourself before you arrive. So I think that's a really helpful tactic that you can just offer up to your manager Here's my info if you wanted to pass on to the team if they don't ask. I think asking, you know, is there an onboarding process? Just curious what my first couple of weeks will look like. I want to make sure I'm prepared is a helpful way of framing it for your manager. And I mentioned this in the framework. It's not allowed in every company, right? Some companies need you to be fully on board to release documents, especially sensitive documents. But if there are manuals, presentations, you know, product brochures, anything really that they can share in advance so that you start that self-study and you're learning the company's language, right? Each company really has its own language in a way. And the, the more that you can learn that in advance, the better. And, and, and I'm, I'll admit, I'm assuming that if you've been hired, you've already read all the websites, you've read the news articles, right? But if you haven't, Go do that too. <laughs> yeah, so and that's a really good point. So, as a hiring manager, two uh, two other places that you can make a huge impact is make suggestions for places that maybe they haven't discovered information or news. Don't assume they've read all the websites. Have a list, like a templated list of these are the websites I expect that you'll be knowledgeable about. These are the topics, and that. Uh, so we, I call that 
pre-learning and we address that in our courses as well. Like one of the ways that we structure our courses is we have all of the modules already ready. When you join the course, you actually get all of the modules and the calls that we have are not teaching moments. They are, well, they are, but they're not going through a lesson plan, they are responding to questions, right? So we use the call as a way to flesh out uncertainty or a lack of clarity around this or that specific piece. So that pre-learning is critical. Well, Hannah, let me share with those who are watching the template here. And if you're not watching, you're listening to this on the podcast, then check out our video clips on how we're going through this template that Hannah has shared. So what we see here is the general template. So we'll start from the basics. Help me understand the way that you frame this out and, and walk me through this template. So as I mentioned, I don't believe in single-use items. <laughs> and you know, especially for strategy work or learning work, ideally, your learning and your communication with your manager never ceases. And so when I develop this, I really wanted to develop it in a way that you could keep using beyond those 90 days. So this general template is actually a template that I use for check-ins with my manager that you know I've, I've worked with many colleagues and friends who have adapted it to use in their check-ins as well. I definitely advise you to keep what you like and leave what you don't. You don't want the filling out of the template to be a work deliverable it should be a communication tool. So I, I definitely advise people, you know, don't spend more than 10 to 15 minutes on it a week. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. Not a deliverable, it's a tool. It's a guidepost. Yeah, and so I've worked in organizations where we have annual goals. I've worked in organizations where 100-day sprints are more appropriate. Whatever your goal horizon is, certainly in organizations where you have annual goals, I've definitely seen it, how easy it is to do those at the beginning of the year, put them in a shelf and then look at them 12 months later, like you've unearthed an archaeological find. And what I like about this template is it keeps them front and center, right? And if, if your needs change as an organization, if the goals shift, you and your employee or, or you and your manager can look at those and go, hey, I don't think this is the right goal. Like, let's make sure we're measuring my progress based on where I am and what the company needs. And so on the general level, are there a couple of key pieces of the, of the general piece of the template that you would highlight? Yeah, I think the goals piece is key. Keeps them top of mind, keeps those expectations shared. It's a piece that I don't update weekly. A lot of my goals don't shift weekly, but I will go back and look at those monthly for my current role. Uh, I've had roles with longer time horizons in, in work before. I'm in a startup now, so we move fast. But for instance, when I was in consulting roles, I might've made those quarterly updates to my manager. So the goals piece, I think, is pretty cornerstone. And are those goals something that you are sitting down with the manager and creating mutually? Is it something that you create on your own and then share with the manager for feedback? How's that best done? Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on where you are in an organization and what those expectations are. You know, what I often see works best is um, there are often going to be top-down goals, right? What are our goals as a team or as a company? You know, so some of that you need to be absorbing, right? Of, of how are you going to help the company achieve its mission and its, you know, or your team's um, KPIs. And then there's the, the bottoms up, right? Of what opportunities have I identified that I know I can go out and achieve for the team. And I, I think it's important to have at least one, if not two professional development goals in there as well. So I, I definitely think a 
a little bit of top down, a little bit of bottom up is, is appropriate. And my preference is always that as a manager, I would provide input on what we need to accomplish. And then I want to see a draft of the goals, you know, especially from a, an inexperienced professional on a team. I want to see them own those goals and develop them themselves and for us to have a conversation around them. Now, is this something that those goals are developed in the first week, two weeks? Uh, is it developed before or after the team meetings that you've set up for them? What about timing on this? You know, I've been speaking a little bit more about the longer term term goals and using this template, you know, in an ongoing way. But in those first 30, 60, 90 days, I take it upon, you know, myself to, to develop the key goals for, mm-hmm. for 30, 60, 90 at a pretty high level. I'm normally a little more clear about the 30 days, right? Like this is your learning period. You need to right. connect with the team. You know, you're expected to have proficiency and training on XYZ at the end of first month. 60 days, get your hands in a couple projects. And, and a lot of that is holding me accountable, right? What have I set them up for? What projects am I going to send them? What do we need to get on their calendar? What meetings do they need to be in, right? Um, so I, I, I own a little bit more of sketching out those 30 and 60. At the 90-day, again, especially if you're hiring experienced professionals, I want to see them come to me with a framework and a strategy about how they plan to succeed. So I map out a couple of those core 30, 60, 90 goals. But when somebody comes on board, normally at the end of their first week or at the beginning of their second week, we sit down and we look at that framework together. And I always invite feedback, right? If they don't think those are the right 30, 60, 90, let's change them. So I want to put some initial structure there. And then ideally, it's a collaborative process. And you need to be open to feedback as a manager too. Yeah, I, I actually like that you have the learning and feedback section, which is rarely updated, as you say, and it shows self-reflection from the team member and feedback from the manager on one success and one area of improvement. And I find that that's something that is far too seldom utilized early in the transition of someone into a new role. Uh, and I, I use those words very specifically because this as well can be utilized as you ascend the ladder in your career, um, even if it's within an organization, when you take on a new role, you still can use this 30, 60, 90 reset of getting uh, new expectations set. Is there a specific time frame which in, within which you try to give feedback? Is it kind of every 30 days uh, up to the 90-day point? Is it every two weeks? Currently, I do weekly check-ins with all my director reports. I've had larger teams where you're looking at every two weeks, um, just, just functionally for, for people, but I do weekly check-ins with all my direct reports now. And so those weekly check-ins are often very tactical, especially in the early days, right? Answering questions, connecting them with resources, but you can definitely carve out time in those for a coaching conversation too. Uh, I think one of the traps that it's so easy to fall into, especially especially as we're more remote, is to make every check-in a laundry list of to-do items and deliverables. And I'm, I'm trying to be more mindful about this myself, but making sure that once a month, once a quarter, that you carve out really at least an hour um, with, your, with your direct reports and have a coaching conversation, uh, which means you talk a lot less as a manager and you listen a lot more. And hear, you know, how are things going? What's your feedback? And so I, I think structuring some of those conversations early is is really important too. And I try to use check-ins in, in those first 90 days to, you know, like I said, be a resource and answer questions. Hannah, I want to ask a question before we d- jump into the template 
that you've tailored for the 306090 quickly. Point number seven is if and as needed, next steps and repeat back. What what's the what's this element of the feedback loop that you're building in? Personally, when I use this template for my check-ins, I use this section to take notes. All right. If I'm having a discussion with with my manager, um, and especially if I'm in my first 30, 60, 90, I'm having a conversation with them to ask questions around, you know. I've understood this about company strategy and about our goals. Does that align with what you're thinking, right? And then I want to be capturing that feedback and those insights I'm getting from my new manager. I might be asking, you know, in the next quarter, what are what's our biggest sales priority, right? What is the account that we need to close right now? Um, who's leading that? How do I help them? What's our biggest gap in partnership? So, you know, I might be asking really meaty questions early on. And, and ideally I've done my homework. So I'm using that, that senior person's time to ask the right questions, but I want to capture their feedback. And then, you know, I, I might also use this area to follow up the next week and say, based on our discussion and the feedback you gave me, here's what I'm going to go accomplish in my 90 day plan, or here's how this is fitting into the strategy that's going to take me beyond 90 days to the rest of the quarter, the rest of the year. Yeah, and I also like the element that you put here, the repeat back, which is often missed in a one-to-one, which is a great opportunity to make sure that you did in fact hear what you thought you heard and say it back to them in the words that you thought you heard. It's never a bad thing to just double check and that repeat back gives you the chance to show them you were listening, both as a manager or as a, uh, as a, uh, as a new hire, and to ensure that you really are understanding their communication style. Absolutely. I think that's key. You know, like I said, I've um, seen a lot of adaptations of this framework. Um, I've have teammates and colleagues who really like the structure of being able to write in it and others who write a few key things of my priorities for the week, but they keep that template. They always have the goals and then they use it for key priorities this week, but they keep the rest of the template because it's an invitation to talk about those subjects, right? And a reminder that we can provide feedback. I can ask you for feedback. I can repeat back to you, right? And so some of them, you might not fill them out every week, but they're a reminder about the structure of conversation that, that you can and might want to be having. When I look at the template here, uh, that's the example 306090 goals, there are basically three columns. On the left column is goals, and there's SMART goals. The middle column is current results, and the right column is projected results. And there's a note in the right column on projected is discussed at 30-day check-in along with conversation about 60-day goals ahead. How do you utilize the first column? Specifically and tactically, where do goals get placed? Are they bullet points in the first column? And tell me more about that process. Yep, I would um, I usually go in, and, and you don't want to overload right? So I would say fewer, better goals. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't need to get into the weeds about read XYZ documents, right? You want to think about what have we accomplished within this period that's getting me on an escalator, right? To, to really being a, a off and running at that 90-day mark. And so those first 30-day goals are usually connect with the team, right? With the prioritization on, on, closest colleagues and, you know, key directors that, that you'll be working with or whose teams you'll be working with. So that's a big goal. That takes a lot of time, right? So building those connections and then you as a manager helping make those connections happen is a lot of the first 30 days. Complete relevant training, 
if there's onboarding, you know, additional compliance requirements or corporate training that they need to do that might be in addition to the job functional training, knocking those things out. Part of what you're doing is just letting them know these are things you need to do, right? Then And here's where to go find them so that they don't need to make their own treasure map in what might be, a, especially in this remote environment, um, a little more opaque, right? They can't just walk around the office and chat with people. So I would bullet those key things out for those first 30 days, 60 days, more processing, more learning. They should start to be thinking about where do I fit in the organization? Where are those gaps? What do I need to learn to figure out where those gaps are and build my plan at 90 days? Um, so a lot more self-study, a lot more question asking, especially for somebody who's been in the space or their role for a while at 60 days, starting to contribute to some meetings or, or you know, joining project meetings or client meetings. So building those into 60 days um, is, is, is helpful. And I would bullet those out in that left column. And then at 90 days, it's again, it's, it's, you've been in learning mode. I, I think it's hard to really have a complete plan at 90 days, but to have a structure and an awareness of where, where gaps are and where you want to get started to jump in. I think that's really essential at 90 days and, you know, to show directionally your strategy and to provide a path for if you need more resources to complete a plan, how you're going to tackle that and when the plan will be ready. Yeah. And I want to highlight for those who uh, maybe haven't read First 90 Days, I also really, really encourage you to do that because the book goes deep into the difference between learning and execution. And since you're not looking at the template and we haven't specifically mentioned it, it's really critical to not overwhelm yourself or your new hire with too many goals or tasks and to really get specific about, you know, a handful uh, over the 90 days that are true goals, right? In your template, it says one to two 60-day goals. Uh, and I think that for type A overachievers, this feels like a bridle, uh, but it actually is an, a tremendous amount of freedom and an accelerant because if you're an overachiever, you tend to jump in and try to wrap your hands around and head around everything. And this gives you the flexibility and freedom to say, okay, I'm going to lean in and help in a way that helps me learn. So in the last 60 seconds, uh, Hannah, help frame the learning versus execution and uh, parting thoughts on how to use this tool. The learning versus execution piece is so key. And it, it's so tempting to jump in and come up with a plan right away. I think for, for anybody who's in the product space or marketing space, we understand the value of listening to customers and a voice of customer and developing empathy with your buyers and your customers. You need to do the same thing within your own organization, right? And so listening and absorbing and learning from your peers and your colleagues and being really mindful, right, about what they've accomplished to date and what, how you can start to think about how you're going to contribute to building upon that to where the organization needs to go tomorrow. That's really what you're trying to do in those first 90 days. And if you sit down and you come in and you try to throw a plan under an organization, you probably haven't listening yet, right? So I think thinking about it that way, absorb, listen, and then you'll be ready to implement for the long term, right? And you, you're, if you're going to be a successful operator and if you're going to make your plan 
into action, you're going to need really strong relationships and you're going to need to have invested in understanding the company and the technology and the product, as well as your customers and your partners. So if you don't start with understanding first, you're not going to be a super effective operator and you probably don't have the foundation in place to make it on the long haul. So that, that time up front, and that doesn't stop at 90 days, right? You've got to feed those relationships and sharpen that understanding over time, but you're building that scaffolding in those first 90 days. Wise words from a, a wise and seasoned leader. Hannah Green is the head of commercial development at Pice. Thank you for joining us again on Suncast and going through this wonderful tool. Thanks so much, Nico. I hope it's helpful to people. And I'm always eager to hear how other managers are doing things and to learn about their tricks and tools. We learn from each other. And and it's part of what I love about this industry so much is what a community it is. Well, Hannah, on that note, I encourage you to jump into our community on Slack. And we've, uh, we're have we rolling out another community that's on an app called Circles. And I would encourage you to jump in. So uh, if you are listening to this and you want uh, feedback from myself or Hannah, join our community. The Slack group is open and there are other ways that you can engage as well in the guild where we're sharing this as premium content uh, and hopefully it's helping you all in your career transition and your career growth. Hannah, once again, thank you. It's all so great to have you back on the show and I know that we'll be seeing you in the community. Thanks, Nico. Well, I am impressed. You made it through all three or at least let me continue believing that you did. What did you learn? Text me. 310-634-1780. 310-634-1780 to let me know which of the three was most useful to you. That's also the best way to get your burning questions answered and get an insider sneak peek of exciting new updates coming for Suncast. I do my best to keep up with these messages, so do please bear with me as I get back to you. That number is 310-634-1780. And of course, For even more content like this, you know you can find dozens of Tactical Tuesdays mixed in with our over 380 Suncast episodes. You can also find resources, highlights from these discussions, along with social media links to each guest, book recommendations, and much, much more by clicking on show notes over at mysuncast.com. And lastly, thank you so much for continuing to listen along. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I would genuinely appreciate you writing a quick review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. It means the world to me. It really lights up my day. Like this one from Doc Lee Jr. on Apple Podcasts, who said, Nico does a great job of engaging smart, interesting, fun guests and topics and providing value in every episode. Oh, shucks. Why, thank you, Doc. I'm honored that you took the time, not just listening, but to also leave that glowing review. Well, as always, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.